Hello. My name online is Ahuka, which is a kind of a odd one, perhaps, but let me explain a little bit about where that comes from. And then I want to get into what brings me here to Hacker Public Radio. Now, as for the name Ahuka, that's just a, it's a nickname. It's spelled A-H-U-K-A. And what it comes from is uh, a Japanese uh, record album where they did a uh, they picked up the Jefferson Airplane record uh, um, the album name was Surrealistic Pillow and there's a song on there that you've probably heard called White Rabbit and they said they decided they were going to put the lyrics uh, print them on the cover of the, the, the LP but they got it slightly off so there's a line in uh, the song that says tell them a hookah smoking caterpillar has given you the call and on this japanese lp it somehow got turned to tell them a hookah with a capital a proper name the swooping caterpillar has given you the call and uh i happen to be a big jefferson airplane fan and at the time there was this mailing list that Jefferson Airplane fans hung out on, and we all thought this was absolutely hilarious. And so that became kind of a running joke, and I kind of adopted it as an online nom de plume, so to speak, and uh, been using it for a number of years ever since. Uh, so what I want to do here, I, I said uh, on Google+, Plus, where I spend a lot of time these days, uh, and I'm connected with Ken Fallon and uh, Henry Patrick Riley and and all of that. And uh, which, uh, for those of you who don't know, um, uh, there was a time when Google was absolutely forbidding anyone to use uh, a business name on Google Plus. And Ken wanted to get this going, and he had set up Hacker Public Radio, and then they started cracking down. So he created a profile called Henry Patrick Riley, and uh, that was kind of a way to get around that, as obviously the same HPR initials. Um, and so uh, I posted there the other day and, and sent this to Ken, saying, uh, all right, Ken, you've been saying you want more people to contribute, and by golly, I, I ought to be able to do some of that. So uh, this is what I think should be the beginning of a number of, uh, of these recordings that uh, I'm going to do and, and send to Hacker Public Radio. And uh, I find I'm already brimming with ideas for various things. But I've noticed that most people, at least the first time they do it, try and do a little bit of an introduction, um, what got them uh, to where they are now, and uh, particularly if you're a Linux user, which I am, um, you know, how did you get into it? So uh, I think this is going to be my introductory um, uh, introductory recording podcast here. Uh, I'm probably a little older than some of the people uh, who you hear on Hacker Public Radio uh, because my earliest experiences with computers really go back to the late 60s. Yep, I'm that old. And... Uh, you know, in those days when you talked about computers, you were mostly talking, at least the ones I interacted with, with mainframes. Uh, and it was a very different sort of thing. Mainframes existed in a separate temple 
where there was a priesthood that uh, maintained and operated them. And, uh, you know, the rest of us who wanted to somehow make use of it, uh, you know, we would have to do things like prepare boxes of punched cards. And, oh boy, were those days fun. Uh, so if you had data that you wanted to enter, a program you wanted to run, uh, you know, you would punch it all onto these uh, IBM punched cards. And uh, these punched cards had 80 uh, characters across, 80 columns, uh, which is why the earliest uh, monitors that uh, came with computers, the monochrome monitors, were also 80 characters across just happened to be that, you know, they were matching the initial punched card capacity. Now, in those days, uh, you know, with punched cards, there were, there were certain things that uh, could cause you a great deal of trouble. Uh, one of them was if the cards get out of order. Uh, if you can just imagine having a whole box full, you know, hundreds of these cards, and, you know, God forbid you bumped into someone in the, ha in the hallway and dropped this box of cards you'd have to be able to get them back in order, which was a bit of a problem. One of the tricks we had back then was to draw a diagonal line across the top with uh, something like a magic marker. Uh, and that made it very easy um, to, you know, if there weren't too many cards, too, too many, you know, it made it a lot easier to get them back in order because you had some sort of visual thing. And then if, if a card was out of order, it tended to stand out a little bit more. So those were my, uh, my earliest experiences with computers. Uh, and later on when I was in college, uh, you know, I went to work first. I didn't go to college until I was in my late 20s. And the college I went to, uh, we had computer accounts that uh, linked to a mainframe, but using a, a teletype terminal. Well, you know, if you take a look at... Uh, at, at the terminal that you have in a Linux machine now, uh, which it just opens up as a window. Why do they call it a terminal? Well, I mean, it used to actually be a terminal. Um, and uh, so when you see the TTY for teletype, uh, what they were talking about was something that had a keyboard and a roll of paper, and uh, you could type in stuff, and it would go to the computer, which was located somewhere else, and uh, whatever the computer spit back at you uh, would, would come back and be printed on those rolls of paper. So I remember being in college and uh, wrote my first program using uh, Dartmouth Basic. Uh, so, you know, that, was, that even preceded so-called Visual Basic, which is something Microsoft came up with years later. But, you know, this was the original Basic, and, uh, you know, every line had a number, you know, so line 10, line 20, line 30, and so on. Uh, and so it, it ran things in that, that order. Uh, you know, that wasn't a bad way to learn something about computers. I, I got some very basic good grounding there in, in college, writing programs in BASIC, that uh, really helped me to understand how computers work. Now, none of those would be what you would call personal computers. So when did I first get a personal computer? Actually, the first one I ever got was called a Sinclair Z80, although my memory is it had a different brand. Maybe it was the Timex version of this. Uh, but the Sinclair Z80, um, which I think probably paid about $100 for back in 1980, um, came with a 
one kilobyte of RAM. That's right, one kilobyte. So we're not talking megabytes or gigabytes or any of the things you're used to now. One kilobyte of RAM. Uh, and that was the, the standard. But I remember looking at this and thinking, okay, one kilobyte is enough. But, you know, over the years, we're probably going to need more. So they offered a 16 kilobyte expansion pack. And being a really forward-thinking kind of person, I said, ah, that is for me. I must get the 16 kilobyte. Uh, so I ordered that, and, uh, you know, that came, you know, the basic unit was just a keyboard with some processing stuff built into it, and you bolted this uh, RAM expansion pack onto the back. For a monitor, you would use a television. So I had this old black-and-white TV. Um, they were more common back then, uh, and that was really all you needed because it was a monochrome um, anyway, the, the, you know, with one kilobyte of RAM, you are not going to be doing color processing, trust me on that one. Uh, then if you created a program or something like that, you used a cassette tape drive. And so you would record stuff onto the cassette tape drive and, uh, and, and bring that back. So you had to supply your own tape drive, your own monitor. Well, you know, any cassette player would work. Um, and say any old television would work. So I had that, and then in 81, I went into graduate school. And at that point, you know, I'm back to mainframes, uh, teletype terminals, um, and, you know, dropping off jobs to be run. And you had to pay for your time. That was uh, another interesting little thing. Uh, So if you were in, in college, university, what have you, uh, they might give you an account, and the account would give you an allocation of a certain number of dollars, uh, and that's what you had available. Um, God forbid you ran out. <laughs> uh, so one of the things that, that we had to do was we had to uh, economize as much as possible. So um, one of the tricks that, that uh, us old-timers remember was, you know, taking our box of punch cards down to the computing center at around 3 a.m. Because at 3 a.m., the computing time was so cheap, you could really stretch your allocation a lot further. So you would, uh, you would take it down and uh, you'd give them your, your punch cards or whatever and tell them to run it. And uh, then you would come back the next day, and with any luck, you'd pick up a printout that had all of the results you needed. Well, what happened if you had made a mistake, if you needed to change something? Well, you had to change the punch cards and come back the next day and drop them off. You know, again, come down at 3 a.m. to... uh, make it as cheap as possible, and then, you know, pick it up. So it was several days later before you got anything. Uh, but, you know, that was what we had, and, uh, you know, it was not bad, because I actually remember in the early 1970s doing by hand uh, linear regressions, um, doing the matrix mathematics. And, and so what that basically meant was you'd have columns of numbers, and you'd take this column, and you'd square every number that was in the column, and then you'd take column A minus column B, you'd do a subtraction, then you'd square that result and stuff like that. Um, and it was just pages and pages and pages of calculations. Well, 
at the time where I got to working on my uh, dissertation, I, I, I talked to a faculty member about that, and he said, well, uh, I'll, I'll be the uh, advisor for your doctoral dissertation on one condition, you must purchase a personal computer. Um, and his reasoning was that if you got a word processor, you could actually get it done. And, and I think the way he put it was, I'll be dead before you finish unless you buy a personal computer. So, okay. So I think I spent $2,000 to purchase an XT, a PCXT, as it was called. Uh, and this was an you know, Intel processor in 8088, uh, two floppy drives. No hard drive. It was running DOS. The word processing program was word perfect. And so what you had to do was uh, you would have to boot from the floppy. Because you had two floppy drives, you would generally have your software in one and your data disk in the other in case you wanted to save any of your files. And so the, the this used uh, the five and, uh, five and a quarter inch floppy drives uh, and they held oh good lord I'm, I'm, I think it was like 360k which seems like an incredible amount and uh, so you'd uh, first you'd boot DOS and then you'd start up the word perfect program and then you know you'd start typing and save your stuff well you know that got me going but I right away started to get curious about what's going on with this computer and started digging into it and uh, you know tried various things there was there were even in those monochrome days there was even online stuff I know that's hard to imagine uh, but uh, you know there were places you could go online and, and connect to people not so much the internet at that point because we were talking like the mid 80s but there were there were uh, you know private net things like CompuServe um, the Sierra network prodigy things like that so I was trying those things out uh, and also trying to figure out what's going on with my computer um, and at a certain point I started to get interested in games and you immediately ran into a, a problem because those old computers, uh, they came with essentially 640K of RAM. And that's not entirely true. Actually, what they came with was a megabyte of RAM. But it wasn't all available to you. So the upper part, the, uh, you know, we, we say a megabyte, we mean, you know, 1,024 kilobytes. Uh, so it's, it's the binary uh, version, not the metric version, and uh, what we um, what we would do is the upper 384k was devoted to handling the uh, the video processing and stuff like that. So 640k was what was left after all of that. Well. It, it was really hard to get everything in there. If you wanted to get the game itself, the drivers, you know, did it run off of a CD drive? You had to load a CD driver if that was the case. Uh, and so it, it, people came up with all of these tricks to somehow steal a little bit of memory from that upper 384 and 
you know, sometimes it was expanded memory, sometimes it was extended, you know, and they were two different ways of basically stealing a few extra K out of that upper 384. And to do that, you'd have to go in, you'd have to tweak your auto exec bat and your config sys to do that. And um, I got, at one point, I got very good at, I, I had it, it actually set up with a boot menu in, in DOS that, uh, uh, you know, you would boot into uh, something that would say, well, you know, choose which configuration you want to be in. And, and so for a, a particular game, it's like, all right, uh, I, I, I can read this off of a floppy drive, so I don't need the CD driver. I'll drop that. That'll give me a few more K, and then I can take something from the upper and, and so on. Uh, the old days. Somewhere in there is where I actually got my first hard drive, which I think was a whopping 20 megabytes. Oh, I thought we'd never be able to fill a 20 megabyte drive. Uh, those were the days. Well, then I got into, uh, you know, DOS. DOS had its limitations. It's a uh, single-tasking uh, operating system, fairly primitive. The initial attempt to get something a little bit better was something called uh, Windows. Uh, you, you may have heard of it. Uh, I understand it's become rather popular in some circles. Uh, so the initial one that, that I tried um, was Windows 3.1, uh, which is widely regarded as the first more or less useful version of Windows. And that was really just a, a uh, I, I think we would call it a shell. You know, it, it wasn't the kernel of the operating system. It was just this thing that sat on top uh, and allowed you to do some fairly simple graphic manipulations. And I like that. I thought, okay, that's better than DOS. And then Windows 95 was a real big change. And, uh, you know, that was the one that I think really put Windows on, on the map to some degree. And I got that, and then, you know, Windows uh, NT. I got into NT 4.0, then Windows 2000, then Windows XP. Well... At a certain point, I started to think, you know, I'm not really happy with Windows. Well, what are we going to do about that? At, at this point, I was a, an assistant professor at a college, and I got uh, interested in all of the online stuff. I mean, the, the Internet had come along. And, uh, you know, these days it seems like everyone has just grown up with the Internet all around them. I have to tell you, it wasn't always the case. And I can remember uh, back, and this probably would have been sometime in the 90s, maybe the mid-90s, uh, having the, uh, the uh, college librarian do a demonstration of this Internet thing and involve running a cable all the way into the auditorium so that we could uh, set up something to show the faculty. Uh, it was a, a very long Ethernet cable. Uh, that would allow them to get some kind of an online co uh, connection. And one of the things that um, that I remember then is that there were so many Internet technologies that have gone by the wayside, like 
gopher servers were really big in those days. I know, you know, I think the web has really wiped out the whole network of gopher servers. But we got into that, and uh, because I was somewhat more tech-savvy than some of the faculty, I was approached to be the uh, faculty development officer uh, with the task specifically of getting my fellow faculty members to use more of this computer technology. So I sort of dove in and started figuring out how I could use websites for my college classes, and uh, that led to, at, at a certain point, me being put in charge of the college website. And I started getting involved with that, and that's really what got me into my first real connection with Linux, because our our server that all of this uh, rested on was a Red Hat server. So I was given a, a login on this server. It's all command line. Uh, so, uh, you know, we didn't have any of the graphical interfaces, which is probably a good thing because, uh, you know, I've, I've never felt awkward about having to use the command line. I mean, command line's not a problem. Uh, as I say, I started with DOS, which is command line anyway, and editing auto-exec that and config sys files and all of that. So, uh, you know, getting into a command line environment with Linux, um, and it wasn't all that frightening. And, you know, I, I use whichever is most convenient for me now, whether it's a, the GUI or the command line. I, I'm not wedded to either. It's uh, whatever is most convenient. So we, anyway, we had this Red Hat server, all command line, um, it wasn't anything that attracted me as a desktop operating system because by this point I, you know, I really had been using Windows for a long time, and I thought, you know, I, I like the graphical interface. I think it makes sense. Uh, you know, I kind of took a look around and and uh, discovered that there was this project just getting off the ground called KDE, um, and it looked really interesting. It wasn't ready for prime time by any sense of the imagination, but, uh, you know, something I was going to keep an eye on. Uh, you know, this could turn into something very useful someday. Um, and then at some point I tried Mandrake. And it was been, it been a few years later because by this point, you know, KDE had matured, obviously, and so I installed Mandrake on a computer and... Uh, I think I did that two or three times. I, you know, the first time it was like, uh, this is all different. I don't know where anything is. So it didn't last. Uh, I tried uh, a few times dual booting and would end up wiping out the Linux one because I just never quite used it. And at some point I did another Mandrake install and all of a sudden stuff started to click. I was like, oh, wait a minute, I can do this. I just figured out how to get all my email using evolution. Uh, you know, I just figured out how I can, you know, do whatever it is I need to do. And uh, so I was I was going with Mandrake for a while. And then at a certain point, um, well, you know, they started to have their problems, sadly. And I think they probably still do to some degree. And there was this new thing, Ubuntu, that came along. Uh and, you know, because I had come from Mandrake and the KDE desktop environment, yes, that is redundant, I know that, but 
Anyway, uh, I, I went with the KDE version, which is Kubuntu, which I'm still using. Um, and uh, that's been my desktop operating system of choice for, I would say, about five years now. Um, and I still have, uh, yeah, I still use Windows at work. Windows XP is our standard desktop where I work now. Uh, and my wife still uses it, and I'm her tech support, and that's okay. Um, and, and frankly, I've got a Windows 7 machine here that uh, I keep for gaming and things like that. But most of the time, uh, I'm sticking with Linux. Uh, and one of the reasons for that is that I, I'm a real believer in freedom and using free software and supporting free software. And that's one of the things that when I record more of these, I'm going to be talking about a lot more. Um, but that has, uh, that has really guided me in um, you know, sticking with Linux and, and trying to support all of that. Now, lately I've been thinking I need to start investigating some other distros and, and get into that. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure. I think pretty soon now I'm going to do an open SUSE and check that out. So we'll see if the combination of KDE with a RPM package management is uh, is okay. And, and so, you know, who knows where that's going to go. I think there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of interesting possibilities out there, and you know, I want to try a, a pure Debian at some point. I want to uh, investigate some of the others. I know a lot of the people uh, that uh, uh, are involved with, like uh, the Linux Link Tech Show, for instance. There's a, a number of them that are big on Arch, and so I'm kind of curious about that. And I've got a good friend who runs Gen 2 and has been saying, Oh, you really ought to do Gen 2. So. Those probably take a little more work, but it should be an interesting, uh, interesting adventure. So anyway, that is uh, that's the story of what got me to this point. Um, one of the things that uh, that I'm a big believer in is, you know, su as I say, supporting free software, supporting the community in various ways, and uh, so I actually found my found myself as president of my local. Linux users group, um, and not because I know more about Linux than anyone else. We've got some really smart people in that group, and and I learn from them every time. Um, you know, I just kept going to the Linux users group, and I'd learn a little bit more each time. And then at a certain point, it's like, well, you know, we need someone to keep this thing going. Uh, I am now, in terms of my day job, I'm a project manager, so it was actually pretty easy for me to pick up the reins as president of the Linux users group. What I mostly do is just make sure that uh, we have a room to meet in and a speaker to speak each month. And so that's a, a nice little organizational task that I'm easily up to. And then as a result of that, I came to the attention of uh, a lady named Beth Lynn Eicher. Some of you may know her uh, as a uh, the leading organizer of Ohio Linux Fest who roped me into that one. And so now I do publicity work for Ohio Linux Fest, and that's probably something I'm going to talk about as well uh, as we do some more of these recordings. Um, and to me, those are examples of just, you know, finding an opportunity to give something back and help support the community. Uh, I'm not a programmer. 
never claimed to be a programmer. Uh, and so, you know, I'm not going to be developing kernel hacks for anybody. Uh, you know, if you are a kernel hacker, God bless you. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's great work that you're doing. But I know that that's not me. And, and that's fine. It doesn't need to be because I can make these contributions in other ways. And uh, so those are just some things that I wanted to kind of throw out there. And uh, if you want to check out my website, uh, a, let me spell it out because it's a, a word you probably aren't used to. Uh, www.zwilnik.com. Zwilnik. Uh, and that name, by the way, comes from a science fiction series of novels. And, uh, you know, when you want a relatively short name that hasn't been taken, you have to look for something unusual, don't you? Uh, so that's that's my domain, and uh, so I, I post things there. You're welcome to go by at any time, take a look. Um, and so I think I'm going to sign off for now. This is Ahuka, and it's been a pleasure talking to you. Bye. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever consider recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binref.com. All Binref projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 License.